my fire once more. <laughs> Welcome. Sit. Are you comfortable? The clock on the mantel has struck twelve, and so begins the midnight hour. The authors you're about to hear will freeze your blood with their tales of evil spirits, demonic forces, and murderous madmen. <laughs> we begin tonight's episode with a story about the greed of men, a pirate's treasure, and the devil that protects it. In Washington Irving's tale, The Devil and Tom Walker. A few miles from Boston, in Massachusetts, there is a deep inlet winding several miles into the interior of the country from Charles Bay and terminating in a thickly wooded swamp or morris. On one side of this inlet is a beautiful dark grove. On the opposite side, the land rises abruptly from the water's edge into a high ridge, on which grow a few scattered oaks of great age and immense size. Under one of these gigantic trees, according to old stories, there was a great amount of treasure buried by Kid the Pirate. The inlet allowed a facility to bring the money in a, a boat secretly, and at night to the very foot of the hill. The elevation of the place permitted a good lookout to be kept that no one was at hand, while the remarkable trees formed good landmarks by which the place might easily be found again. The old stories add, moreover, that the devil presided at the hiding of the money and took it under his guardianship. But this, it is well known, he always does with buried treasure, particularly when it has been ill-gotten. Be that as it may, Kid never returned to recover his wealth, being shortly after seized at Boston, sent out to England, and there hanged for a pirate. About the year 1727, just at the time the earthquakes were prevalent in New England and shook many tall sinners down upon their knees, there lived near this place a meagre, miserly fellow of the name of Tom Walker. He had a wife of as miserly as herself, 
They were so miserly that they even conspired to cheat each other. Whatever the woman could lay her hands on, she hid away. A hen could not cackle, but she was on the alert to secure the new laid egg. Her husband was continually prying about to detect her secret hordes, and many and fierce were the conflicts that took place about what ought to have been common property. They lived in a forlorn-looking house that stood alone and had an air of starvation. A few straggling savin trees, emblems of sterility, grew near it. No smoke ever curled from its chimney, no traveller stopped at its door. A miserable horse, whose ribs were as articulate as the bars of a gridiron, stalked about a field, where a thin carpet of moss, scarcely covering the ragged beds of pudding stone, tantalised and balked at his hunger, and sometimes he would lean his head over the fence, look piteously at the passerby, and seem to petition deliverance from this land of famine. The house and its inmates had altogether a bad name. Tom's wife was a tall, termagant, fierce and of temper, loud of tongue and strong of arm. Her voice was often heard in, in wordy warfare with her husband, and his face sometimes showed signs that the conflicts were not confined to words. No one ventured, however, to interfere between them. The lonely wayfarer shrank within himself at the horrid clamour and clapper-clawing, eyed the den of discord ensconce, and hurried on his way, rejoicing, if a, if a bachelor in his celibacy. One day that Tom had, uh, had been to a distant part of the neighbourhood, he took what he considered a shortcut homeward through the swamp. Like most shortcuts, it was an ill-chosen route. The swamp was thickly grown with great gloomy pines and hemlocks, some of them 90 feet high, which made it dark at noonday and a retreat for all of the owls of the neighbourhood. It was full of pits and quagmires, partly covered with weeds and mosses, where the green surface often betrayed the traveller into a gulf of black, smothering mud. There were also dark and stagnant pools, the abodes of the tadpole, the bullfrog and the water snake, where the trunks of pines and hemlocks lay half-drowned, half-rotting, looking like alligators sleeping in the mire. Tom had long been packing his way cautiously through the treacherous forest, stepping from tuft to tuft of rushes and roots, which afforded precarious footholds among deep sloughs, or pacing carefully like a cat along the prostrate trunks of trees, startled now and then by the sudden screaming of the bittern or the quacking of a wild duck rising on the wing from some solitary pool. At length he arrived at a firm piece of ground which ran like a peninsula into the deep bosom of the swamp. It had been one of the strongholds of the Indians during their wars with the first colonists. Here they had thrown up a kind of fort which they had looked upon as almost impregnable and had used as a place of refuge for their squaws and children. Nothing remained of the old Indian fort but a few embankments gradually sinking to the level of the surrounding earth and already overgrown in part by oaks and other forest trees, the foliage of which formed a contrast to the dark pines and hemlocks of the swamps. It was late in the dusk of evening when Tom Walker reached the old fort and he paused there a while to rest himself. 
Anyone but he would have felt unwilling to linger in this lonely, melancholy place, for the common people had a bad opinion of it, from the stories handed down from the times of the Indian Wars, when it was asserted that savages held incantations here and made sacrifices to the evil spirit. Tom Walker, however, was not a man to be troubled with any fears of, the, of this kind. He, he reposed himself for some time on the trunk of a fallen hemlock, listening to the bodding cry of the, of the tree, tree toad and delving with his walking staff into a mound of black mould at his feet. As he turned up, uh, up the soil unconsciously, his staff struck against something hard. He raked it out of the vegetable mould and, lo, a cloven skull with an Indian tomahawk buried deep in it lay before him. The rust on the weapon showed the time that had elapsed since this death blow had been given. It was a dreary memento of the fierce struggle that had taken place in this last foothold of the Indian warriors. (coughs) Said Tom Walker as he gave a kick to to shake the dirt from it. Let that skull alone, said a gruff voice. Tom lifted up his eyes and beheld a great black man seated directly opposite him on the stump of a tree. He was exceedingly surprised, having neither heard nor seen anyone approach, and he was still more perplexed on observing, as well as the gathering gloom would permit, that the stranger was neither Negro nor Indian. It is true he was dressed in a rude Indian garb, and had a red belt or sash swathed around his body, but his face was neither black nor copper colour, but swarthy and dingy, and begrimed with soot, as if he had been accustomed to toil among fires and forges. He had a shock of coarse black hair that stood out from his head in all directions and bore an axe on his shoulder. He scowled for a moment at Tom with a pair of great red eyes. "'What are you doing on my grounds?' said the black man with a hoarse, growling voice. "'Your grounds?' said Tom with a sneer. No more your grounds than mine. They belong to Deacon Peabody. Deacon Peabody be damned, said the stranger. As I flatter myself, he will be, if he does not look more more to his own sins and less to those of his neighbours. Look yonder and see how Deacon Peabody is faring. Tom looked in the direction that the stranger pointed and beheld one of the great trees, fair and flourishing without, but rotten at the core and saw that it had been nearly hewn through so that the first high wind was likely to blow it down. On the bark of the tree was scored the name of Deacon Peabody, an eminent man who had waxed wealthy by driving shrewd bargains with the Indians. He now looked around and found most of the tall trees marked with the name of the great man of the colony, and all more or less scored by the axe. The one on which he had been seated and which had evidently just been hewn down bore the name of Crowninshield. He recollected a mighty rich man of that name who made a vulgar display of wealth which it was whispered he had acquired by buccaneering. He's just ready for burning, said the black man with a growl of triumph. You see, I'm likely to have a good stock of firewood for winter. But right have you, said Tom, to cut down Deacon Peabody's timber. The right of a prior claim, said the other. This woodland belonged to me long before one of your 
white-faced race put foot upon the soil. And, and, and pray, who are you, if I may be so bold, said Tom. Oh, I go by various names. I am the wild huntsman in some countries. <clears throat> the black miner in others. In this neighbourhood, I am known by the name of the black woodsman. I am he to whom the red men consecrated this spot and in honour of whom they now and then roasted a white man by way of sweet-smelling sacrifice. Since the red men have been ex exterminated by you white savages, I amuse myself by presiding at the persecutions of Quakers and Anabaptists. I am the great patron and prompter of slave dealers and the grand master of the Salem witches. Yap shot of all which is that, if I may mistake not, said Tom sturdily, you are he commonly called Old Scratch. The same at your service, replied the black man with a half civil nod. Such was the opening of this interview, according to the old story, though it is almost too familiar an air to be credited. One would think that to meet with such a singular personage in this wild, lonely place would have shaken any man's nerves. But Tom was a hard-minded fellow, not easily daunted, and he had lived so long with a imagined wife that he did not even fear the devil. It is said that after this commencement they had a long and earnest conversation together as Tom turned, uh, returned homeward. The black man told him of great sums of money buried by Kid the Pirate under the oak trees on the high ridge not far from the Morris. All these were under his command and protected by his power so that none could find them but such as propitiated his favour. These he offered to place within Tom Walker's reach, having conceived an especial kindness for him, but they were to be had only on certain conditions. What these conditions were may be easily surmised, though Tom never disclosed them publicly. They must have been very hard, for he required them to, to think of them. And he was not a man to stick at trifles when money was in view. When they had reached the edge of the swamp, the stranger paused. What proof have I that you've been telling me the truth? said Tom. There's my signature, said the black man, pressing his finger on Tom's forehead. So saying, he turned off among the thickets of the swamp and seemed, as Tom said, to go down, down, down into the earth until nothing but his head and shoulders could be seen, and so on until he totally disappeared. When Tom reached home, he found the black print of a finger burned, as it were, into his forehead, which nothing could obliterate. The first news his wife had to tell him was the sudden death of Absalom Crowninshield, the rich buccaneer. It was announced in the papers with the usual flourish that a great man had fallen in Israel. Tom recollected the, the tree which had black friend, which his black friend had just hewn down and which was ready for burning. Let the freebooter roast, said Tom. Who cares? He now felt convinced that all he had heard and seen was no illusion. He was not prone to let his wife into his confidence, but at this 
It was an uneasy secret. He willingly shared it with her. All her avarice was awakened at the mention of hidden gold, and she urged her husband to comply with the black man's terms and secure what would wait, uh, make them wealthy for life. However, Tom might have felt disposed to himself to the devil. He was determined not to do so to oblige his wife, so he flatly refused out of the mere spirit of contradiction. Many and bitter were the quarrels they had on the subject, but the more she talked the more resolute was Tom not to be damned to please her. At length she determined to drive the bargain on her own account and, if she succeeded, to keep all the gain to herself. Being of the same fearless temper as her husband, she set off for the old Indian fort toward the close of, of a summer's day. She was many hours absent. When she came back, she was reserved and sullen in her replies. She spoke something of a black man whom she had met about twilight, hewing at the root of a tall tree. He was sulky, however, and would not come to terms. She was to go again with a, a propitiatory offering. But what it was, she forbore to say. The next evening she set off again for the swamp with her apron heavily laden. Tom waited and waited for her, but in vain. Midnight came, but she did not make her appearance. Morning, noon, night returned, but still she did not come. Tom now grew uneasy for her safety, especially as he found she had carried off in her apron the silver teapot and spoons and every portable article of value. Another night elapsed, another morning came, but no wife. In a word, she was never heard of again. What was her real fate, nobody knows. In consequence of so many pretending to know, it is one of those facts which have become confounded by a variety of historians. Some asserted that she lost her way among the tangled mazes of the swamp and sank into some pit or slough. Others were uncharitable, hinted that she had eloped with the household booty and made off to some other province. While others surmised that the temper had to decoyed her into a dismal quagmire on the top of which her hat was found lying. In confirmation of this, it was said a great black man with an axe on his shoulder was seen late that very evening coming out of the swamp, carrying a bundle tied in a check apron with an air of surly triumph. The most current and probable story, however, however observes that Tom Walker grew so anxious about the fate of his wife and his property that he set out at length to seek them both at the Indian fort. During a long summer's afternoon, he searched about the gloomy place, but no wife was to be seen. He called her name repeatedly, but she was nowhere to be heard. The bittern alone responded to his voice as he flew screaming by, or the bull croak, a bullfrog croaked dolefully from a neighbouring pool. At length, it is said, just in the brown hour of twilight... When the owls began to hoot and the bats to flit about, his attention was attracted by the clamour of carrion crows hovering about a, a cypress tree. He looked up and beheld a bundle tied in a check apron and hanging in the branches of the tree, with a great vulture perched hard by, as if keeping watch upon it. He leapt with joy, for he recognised his wife's apron and supposed it to contain the household valuables. Let us get hold of the property, he said consolingly to himself, and we will endeavour to do without the woman. 
As he scrambled up the tree, the vulture spread its wide wings and sailed off screaming into the deep shadows of the forest. Tom seized the checked apron, but, woeful sight, found nothing but a heart and liver tied up in it. Such, according to this most authentic old story, was all that was to be found of Tom's wife. She had probably attempted to deal with the black man as she had been accustomed to deal with her husband. But though a female scold is generally considered a match for the devil, yet in this instance she appears to have had the worst of it. She must have died game, however, for it is said Tom noticed many prints of cloven feet deeply stamped about the tree and found handfuls of hair that looked as if they had been plucked from the coarse black shock of the woodsman. Tom knew his wife's prowess by experience. He shrugged his shoulders as he looked at the signs of fierce clapper clawing. Egad, he said to himself, old Scratch must have had a, a tough time of it. Tom consoled himself for the loss of his property, with the loss of his wife, for he was a man of fortitude. He even felt something like gratitude towards the black woodsman, who, he considered, had done him a kindness. He sought, therefore, to cultivate a further acquaintance with him, but for, the, for some time without success, the old black legs played shy for, for whatever people may think he is not always to be had for the calling. He knows how to play his cards when pretty sure of his game. At length, it is said, when delay had whetted Tom's eagerness to the quick and prepared him to agree to anything rather than not gain the promised treasure, he met the black man one evening in his usual woodsman dress, with his axe on his shoulder, sauntering along the, st the swamp and humming a tune. He affected to receive Tom's advances with great indifference, made brief replies and went on humming his tune. By degrees, however, Tom brought him to business, and they began to haggle about the terms on which the former was to have the pirate's treasure. There's one condition which need not be mentioned, being generally understood in all cases where the devil grants favours, but there were others about which, though of less importance, he was inexplicably obstinate. He insisted that the money found through his means should be employed in his service. He proposed, therefore, that Tom should employ it in the black traffic, that is to say, that he should fit out a slave ship. This, however, Tom resolutely refused. It was bad enough in all uh, conscience, but the devil himself could not tempt him to turn slave trader. Finding Tom so squeamish on this point, he did not insist upon it, but proposed instead that he should turn a, a usurer. The devil, being extremely anxious for the increase of usurers, looking upon them as his peculiar people. To this no objections were made, for it was just to Tom's taste. You shall open the broker's shop in Boston next month, said the black man. I'll do it tomorrow if you wish, said Tom Walker. You shall lend money at 2% a month. You can't, I'll charge four, replied Tom Walker. You shall extort bonds for close mortgages. Drive the merchants to bankruptcy. I'll drive them to the devil, cried Tom Walker. You are the usurer of my money, said Black Legs with delight. When will you want the rhino? This very night. Done, said the devil. Done, said Tom Walker. So they shook hands and struck a bargain. 
A few days' time saw Tom Walker seated behind his desk in a counting house in Boston. His reputation for a ready-moneyed man who would lend money out for good consideration soon spread abroad. Everybody remembers the time of Governor Belcher when money was particularly scarce. It was a time of paper credit. The country had been deluged with government bills. The famous land bank had been established. There had been a rage for speculating. The people had run mad with schemes for new settlements, for building cities in the wilderness. Land jobbers went about with maps of grants and townships and El Dorados lying... uh, Nobody knew where, but which everybody was ready to purchase. In a word, the great speculating fever which breaks out every now and then in the country had raged to an alarming degree, and everybody was dreaming of making sudden fortunes from nothing. As usual, the fever had subsided, the dream had gone off, and the imaginary fortunes with it. The patients were left in a doleful plight, and the whole country resounded with the constant... consequent cry of hard times. At this propitious time of public distress did Tom Walker set up as usurer in Boston. His door was soon thronged by customers, the needy and adventurous, the gambling speculator, the dreaming land jobber, the thriftless tradesman, the merchant with cracked credit. In short, Everyone driven to raise money by desperate means and desperate sacrifices hurried to Tom Walker. Thus Tom was the universal friend to the needy and acted like a friend in need. That is to say, he always exacted good pay and security. In proportion to the distress of the applicant was the hardness of his terms. He accumulated bonds and mortgages and gradually squeezed his customers closer and closer and sent them at length dry as a sponge from his door. In this way he made money hand over hand and became a rich and mighty man, exalted his cocked hat upon change. He built himself, as usual, a vast house out of ostentation, but left the greater part of it unfinished and unfurnished, out of parsimony. He even set up a carriage in the fullness of his vainglory, though he nearly starved the horses which drew it. And as the ungreased wheels groaned and screeched on the axle trees, you would have thought you heard the souls of the poor debtors he was squeezing. As Tom waxed old, however, he grew thoughtful. Having secured the good things of, of this world, he began to feel anxious about those of the next. He thought with regret of the bargain he had made with his black friend, and set his wits to work to cheat him out of the conditions. He became, therefore, all of a sudden a violent churchgoer. He prayed loudly and strenuously, as if heaven were to be taken by force of lungs. Indeed, one might always tell when he had sinned most during the week by the clamour of his Sunday devotion. The quiet Christians who had been modestly and steadfastly travelling Zionward were struck with self-reproach at seeing themselves so suddenly outstripped in their career by this new-made convert. Tom was as rigid in religious as in money matters. He was stern supervisor and censurer of his neighbours and seemed to think every sin entered up to their account became a credit on his own side of the page. He even talked of the expediency of reviving the 
persecution of Quakers and Anabaptists. In a word, Tom's zeal became as notorious as his riches. Still, in spite of all this strenuous attention, attention to forms, Tom had a lurking dread that the devil, after all, would have his due. That he might not be taken unawares, therefore, it is said he was always carried a small Bible in his coat pocket. It also a great folio Bible on his county house desk and would frequently be found reading it when people called on business. On such occasions, he would lay his green spect spectacles in the book to mark the place while he turned round to drive some usurious bargain. Some say that Tom grew a little crack-brained in his old days and that fancying his end approaching, he had his horse new-shod, saddled and bridled and buried with his feet uppermost because he supposed that at the last day the world would be turned upside down, in which case he should find his horse standing ready for mounting. He was determined that the horse to give his old friend a run for it. This, however, is probably a mere old wife's fable. If he really did take such a precaution, it was totally superfluous. At least so says the authentic old le legend, which closes his story in the following manner. One hot summer afternoon in the dog days, just as te a terrible black thunder gust was coming up, Tom sat in his counting house in his white linen cap and India silk morning gown. He was on the point of foreclosing a mortgage by which he would complete the ruin of an unlucky land speculator for whom he had professed the greatest friendship. The poor land jobber begged him to grant a few months' indulgence. Tom had grown testy and irritated and refused another delay. My family will be ruined and brought upon the parish, said the land jobber. Charity begins at home, replied Tom. I must take care of myself in these hard times. You've made so much money out of me, said the speculator. Tom lost his patience in his piety. The devil take me, he said, if I have made a farthing. Just then there were three loud knocks at the street door. He stepped out to see who was there. A black man was holding a black horse which neighed and stamped with impatience. Tom, you come for, said the black fellow gruffly. Tom shrank back, but too late. He had left his little Bible at the bottom of his coat pocket and his big Bible on the desk buried under the mortgage he, had, he was about to foreclose. Never was sinner taken more unawares. The black man whisked him like a child into the saddle, gave the horse the lash, and away he galloped with Tom on his back in the midst of the thunderstorm. The clerks stuck their pens behind their ears and stared after him from the windows. Away went Tom Walker, dashing down the streets, his white cap bobbing up and down, his morning gown fluttering in the wind, and his steed striking fire out of the pavement at every, every bound. When the clerks turned to look for the black man, he had disappeared. Tom Walker never returned to foreclose the mortgage. A countryman who lived on the border of the swamp reported that in the height of the thunder gust he had heard a great clattering of hooves and a howling along the road and rain to the window caught sight of a figure such as I have described on a horse that galloped like mad across the fields over the hills and down into the black hemlock swamp towards the old Indian fort that shortly after a thunderbolt falling in that direction seemed to set the whole forest in a blaze. The wood people of Boston shook their heads and shrugged their shoulders. 
but have been so much accustomed to witches and goblins and tricks of the devil in all kinds of shapes from the first settlement of the colony that they were not so much horror-struck as might have been expected. Trustees were appointed to take charge of Tom's effects. There was nothing, however, to administer upon. On searching his coffers, all his bonds and mortgages were reduced to cinders. In place of gold and silver, his iron chest was filled with chips and shavings. Two skeletons lay in his stable instead of his half-starved horses. The very next day, his great house took fire and was burned to the ground. Such was the end of Tom Walker and his ill-gotten wealth. Let all gripping muddy brokers lay this story to heart. The truth of it is not to be doubted. The very hole under the oak trees whence he dug kids' money is to be seen to this day. And the neighbouring swamp and old Indian fort are often haunted in stormy nights by a figure on horseback in morning gown and white cap, which is doubtless the troubled spirit of the usurer. In fact, the story has resolved itself into a proverb and is the origin of that popular saying so prevalent throughout New England of the devil and Tom Walker. Once upon a time there was a young priest named Kenji. He lived in a small village in the mountains of Japan. Kenji had a happy life. He loved his family and friends, and he was passionate about his work as a priest. Kenji was walking through the mountains when he was caught in a storm. He was soaked to the bone and exhausted. He didn't know what to do. He was afraid of getting lost or even dying in the storm. Suddenly he saw a light in the distance. He stumbled towards it and soon found himself in front of a small hut. An old woman opened the door and Kenji was struck by her kind face. Come in, come in, she said. You must be freezing. She stepped inside and the woman closed the door behind him. She led him to a fire and gave him some food and water. Thank you, Kenji, he said. I don't know what I would have done if you hadn't found me. It's nothing, the woman said. I'm just glad I could help. Kenji ate and drank, and soon he became he began to feel warm and drowsy. He lay down on the floor, and soon he was asleep. The next morning, Kenji woke up to the smell of cooking food. He got up and went to the kitchen where the woman was preparing breakfast. Good morning, she said. I hope you slept well. I did, Kenji said. Thank you. After breakfast, Kenji thanked the woman for her hospitality and set off on his journey. He walked for hours and by nightfall he was exhausted. He saw a light in the distance and he headed towards it. As he got closer, he saw that it was the same hut from the night before. He hesitated, but then he knocked on the door. The woman opened the door and Kenji was surprised to see that she was not the same woman he had met the night before. This woman was old and ugly, with long, sharp teeth. 
What do you want? She asked, her voice like nails on a chalkboard. I I was just wondering if I could stay here for the night, Kenji said. Of course you can, the woman said. Come in, come in. Kenji stepped inside and the woman closed the door behind him. She led him to a room and told him to make himself comfortable. Kenji lay down on the bed and soon he was asleep. He dreamed that the woman was standing over him, her teeth bared. He woke up in a cold sweat and he knew that he had to get out of there. He got up and quietly opened the door. The woman was nowhere to be seen. He crept down the hall and out the front door. Kenji ran as fast as he could, but the the mother was faster. She caught up to him and grabbed him by the neck. She lifted him up into the air and held him there, choking him. Kenji struggled to breathe. He tried to break free, but a mumba was too strong. He felt his vision start to blur. He knew that he was going to die. The Amamba opened her mouth and bared her teeth. She was going to eat him. Kenji closed his eyes and waited for the end. With nobody there to help or protect him, Kenji's life slipped away as the Amamba feasted upon her prey. His final moments were filled with terror and despair. In time, word spread about Kenji's gruesome fate at the hands of the Amamba. The villagers mourned their loss and became ever more cautious when venturing into the into the forest. I used to stroll with her. Now I walk by myself. We would admire the lovely homes together, but now I stare at my feet. Every house feels like salt on an open wound, each one a reminder of my loss. Despite the pain, I persist in taking those familiar walks. Sometimes anguish can be beneficial. I prefer to experience the sorrow of her absence rather than not feel her presence at all. She remains alive when I walk. She's the shadow that follows me. Although I can't see her, I sense her. It's as if she was a protective layer, shielding me during a fierce storm. The pain does disappear, but it's more bearable when I'm in motion. Even though I I can't talk to her, she's still there. When I stumble over a root, an invisible hand catches me. When I drift from my path, a gentle nudge keeps me on track. Ultimately, I find myself standing before the same house on Jackson Street every day. The splendid residence now stands neglected and, and abandoned. Its, sh- its windows are boarded up and the door is locked shut. No trespassing signs are haphazardly scattered around the overground yard that long ago displayed its former beauty. It's here that I feel her presence most intensely almost as if she's concealed behind some invisible barrier. However much I call out or try to reach her, she remains elusive. The emotions overwhelm me at this spot during my daily pilgrimage, and each visit ends in tears. Neighbours admire with caution and suspicion, but concern for their opinions has long since faded away. Standing as an old man weeping for the one he lost. 
Let them believe what they will. She was worth every single tear. Feeling a gentle touch on my shoulder, I look up to find the front door of the house wide open with light streaming out. And there she stands, my Lenore. I race towards the open door and into the arms of the woman, lost, drawn back to me by my heart, rending calls. I barely notice the cuts and scrapes as I push through the thickets in tangled grass, nor does tripping over a hidden bottle deter, deter me from my pursuit. I surge onward with the vigour of a much younger man. Finally, I am face to face with her. There's no doubt about it. She, was, she has the same strawberry blonde hair that always took my breath away. Styled in a French braid, complemented by a daisy tucked behind her left ear. Time appears to have turned back the two decades on her face. Imbued with a fine layer of freckles on her nose and cheeks. Just before taking action, she disappears, leaving me alone at the entrance one more. I surveyed the hallway, observing that it is fully furnished, without any signs of dust or decay. The parlour looks immaculate. So, to my surprise, I hear piano music. It's Fur Elise, a tune I could identify anywhere. Lenore pla uh, played it uh, on it as she passed away. Turkish rug in the hallway appears familiar, featuring a wolf howling at the moon and an image of a ship navigating through the rough waters. As I step forward, I no longer have control over my body. Instead, everything plays out like a film before me as I see my hand reaching for the fancy door handle. Behind this door, I know there are stairs leading to the main room. However, I don't want to remember. My heart sinks as I, re I find myself back on that fateful day my wife died. Upon reaching this realisation, my treacherous hand flings open the hallway door against my will. Desperate for control and avoiding what's next, my eyes unwillingly widen at the sight of the, of the back of sweet Lenore's head, that cursed daisy resting behind her ear. Oblivious to my presence, she continues to play. Despite not wanting to know what transpires next, my feet betray me and move me forward, up one step and then another. In no time, half the, half the steps are behind me now. I catch a glimpse of her back. She wears a flower-patterned dress adorned with hummingbirds, sipping on nectar for Elise, uh, builds in intensity as it approaches its peak. And I spot him lounging nonchalantly in my chair, savouring my whiskey with his shirt partly undone. Unbridled anger flares within me. Once more I glance left and right, spying my ca cavalry sa sabre displayed on the wall. Although aware of the outcome, I am powerless to relinquish my grip on the sword, my hand turning white from holding it so tightly. I watch helplessly as sword raised. I march up behind her. The climax of fur release coincides with my arm swing, striking her left shoulder blade. The music ceases in a cacophony of disharmony. Suddenly I scream in anguish and curse my uncontrollable temper while witnessing her fall off her seat. Without hesitating, I confront the man just beginning to look up from his relaxed position in my chair. My sword pierces his right abdomen, producing a single yell before my next swing connects with his throat. I am horrified by the blood gushing from his almost severed neck. My hands are crimson and I feel a damp stickiness covering my face. But I can't control my own limbs as they repeatedly swing. 
cutting the man into pieces. I tried to shut my eyes, but they won't obey, forcing me to witness his hand being severed. I observe his inside spilling out of his abdomen, and I clear his head, watching his brain matter seep out from the sides. To my horror, I hear a choking sound emanating from behind me. I turn around, dreading what I am about to see, yet unable to prevent it. I see Lenore's face directed at me, attempting to speak with blood droplets tricking out of her mouth. The words don't need to be heard. I understand her, please. Please, no more! Compassion fills my heart while my own denied tears linger. Please don't let this happen. I scream at myself helplessly. As I gradually approach my estranged wife, the blade edges a sinister trail on the marble floor. Ruthlessly, my arm swings once, twice, and then thrice with the blade until darkness envelopes at last. Control over my body returns. As I gaze around, I see the defaced grand hall bearing an ugly gash in its marble floor. There was dismembered body lying there with death, filled yet strangely alive eyes. I witnessed the abomination that was once my wife struggled to stand up. Her left eye falls from its socket like molten liquid, streaking down her face while blackened blood oozes from her wounds. Her remaining eye meets mine, and in a disgusting slurping sound, she says, You will never forget what happened here. Prison wasn't enough for you. You didn't hold back then, so now even your Alzheimer's won't save you from reliving this. Should we do this again tomorrow, my love? <laughs> Back to the midnight hour. As I promised, we're about to hear from Vincent Price as he brings James Poe's classic story about an actor on the verge of total insanity to life in Rave Notice. Enjoy. Mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. The dream of every actor is the perfect performance. The performance that brings the audience to its feet, shouting bravo, and brings the critics to their knees with rave notices. But audiences, critics, and playwrights, being what they are, this dream is seldom realized. In the upcoming suspense story, however, it is, with some startling results. Listen, listen then as Mr. Vincent Price stars in Rave Notice, which begins in just a moment. And now, Rave Notice, starring Vincent Price, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. I'm an actor, and this is a theater. Um, I have permission. 
Up there on the stage, beyond the empty seats lit by the single bare bulb of the work light, are my fellow actors. We are here to make a play. Friend Norman, sitting alone in the third row, is our director. This is the fifth day of rehearsal. It's not a bad little play, but you know Norman. Norman will manage somehow to spoil it. Norman will misdirect the actors and lose the values. No! No, 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 no. Norman, why not? Why not? Because I am the director and I say no. No. Yes, Norman. All right, cast, take five. Oh, Sam. Oh, yes, Norman. Uh, Sam, come over here. I, I want to talk to oh, you. Sure, Norman, sure, sure. Well, what is it? Sam, I've, I've had to turn over the bell ringer to Luther. The bell ringer? That's my part, the bell ringer. What do you mean, Luther? Don't make it difficult for me, difficult. Sam. I'm not making it difficult. The bell ringer role is mine, that's all. There's no difficulty involved. It's, you must be kidding. It's not as if I hadn't warned well, you, Well, look, Sam. tell me what's wrong. Tell me where I've gone off. What irritates you? What doesn't fit? I'll well, fix it. I'll fix it. That's my role, Norman. I carry the whole play with that role. Don't shout, Sam. Don't make a fool of yourself. A fool? Oh. Look, Norman, why are you doing this to me? Because you're not right for it. Not right? Uh, you fat pig, what do you no, know? How easy. What do you know? What do you know about acting? Easy, Sam, take it easy there. Fat, fat belly, fat head, fat face. That's enough. You know nothing. I know you. I know actors. You're no actor. You stink. Oh, I'll kill you for saying that. And I'll kill you. Uh, did you hear that, Cast? He's your witnesses. He's threatening me again. Yes, listen well, my friends. Norman, I'm going to kill you. Norman, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> uh, you see, you can't even deliver that line. You stink. <laughs> Gentlemen. I want to buy a gun. Yes, sir. And what sort of gun did you wish to buy? One that'll shoot through fat. Sir? Oh. Pardon me, I was thinking. Uh, uh, well, what have you got? What was it you wish to use this gun for? I want to kill a rat. Oh, I think then maybe uh, 22, huh? Now then, let me see here. It's a nice little gun. Mm, that looks pretty small. This is an awful big rat, a fat rat. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I, I think a shotgun then, a four-ten, yes. You think that'll do it? <laughs> it should, it should. Bullets, you have bullets? Shells you use in this gun. Very well, I want one. One box? No, one shell. Only one? Yeah, this rat I'm not going to miss. Time now. He will come out of the stage door and he'll walk this way through Schubert's alley on his way to Sardi's for a drink. I slide the gun out from under my coat and I wonder heart or belly? Heart or belly? <laughs> belly. Belly, yes, his cultivated paunch fatted with actors' hearts. Here he comes, on cue for his exit. Goodbye, Norman. Sam! Ah! 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 
shot. I, I'm shot. Norman, you're dying. Please, somebody call an ambulance, please. <laughs> Is this how you play your death scene, Norman? You're dying, Norman. Play it. Play it! He didn't die right away. He just lay there in Schubert's Alley and bled. And then they took him to the hospital and they took me to Tombs Prison and they got me a lawyer. I suppose when he dies, I become a murderer. Yes. They'll electrocute me. Yes. I must have been crazy. I thought of that. What do you mean? Temporary insanity. I thought we might plead that. Well, why don't we? Because you threatened him before witnesses at least twice, went to a store, chose a gun with great care, waited for him to appear. You did all this, and you shot him. Well, that's right, I did. That's premeditated murder. First-degree murder. So the temporary insanity thing is out. Way out. The, um... Only other thing I could think of is um, if we could prove you were insane all along. What would happen? I mean, what would happen if I were? Then they couldn't execute you. <laughs> of course. You seem very calm. I'm an actor. Insane. Mad. <laughs> I know a joke. A wonderful joke. I'm going to Norman, even in his grave. I'm going to have myself exonerated of his murder. Yes, freed of the charges. It's so simple. I'm going to play the greatest role of my life. Play it without makeup, without lights, without script or cue. I'm going to play a part strangely foreign to my nature. I'm going to play a homicidal maniac. Continue with the second act of Suspense. And now, starring Vincent Price, Act Two of Rave Notice. I'm going to play a homicidal maniac. How? How? By using the method, the Stanislavski method. Let's see now, what is the most horrible thing I ever did? The thing closest to murder. I must recreate that mood. Murder, killing, blood. I killed a cat once. I was six years old. I had a stick. It was in an alley, this cat. I poked it just for funny. But he scratched me and I hit him. Hit him with the stick. He started squalling and oh, I thought I'm going to get in trouble. Stop that noise. Stop that noise. So I hit him again to make him stop, and again to make him stop, and there was blood, red blood on the grace, and then I struck and struck and struck out the screams, struck out the light, struck out the awful gaze of those great yellow eyes, struck out the light, strike out the spirit, spark I kill. The murderer am I. Killed for the thrill of the silence of the cat. I am a murderer. A murderer reason. And that's it. That's the character. All I need for turning it on is the memory, those key points, grace and then cat's eyes, my feelings as a six-year-old. Oh, there'll be refinements. I'll refine it. Oh, Norman, if you were only to see this scene. Dim the house lights. Raise the curtain. And now to bring in the audience. Ha, 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 ha,
Hey, you. Who may I ask are you? Huh? What's going on down here, Murph? I don't know. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Who oh, are you? Come on, now, will you mark? I have to give a question. I expect a civil answer. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Oh, so nice and quiet for a while. Uh, yeah. Just answer my question. That's all I ask, and that's not much for a hero to be asking now, is it? You don't know who we are. I think he's putting on an act. Hey, hey, don't turn your head away. We know you hear us. Yeah, leave him be. You think he's kidding? Who cares? Yeah. Well, it's very weak. You can do better than that. You're supposed to be a murderer, a homicidal maniac. So what's the emotion? Guilt. You've got to be guilty, 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 guilty. Smear yourself with the stuff. Guilty, bloody hands, guilty, and you want to be punished. Yes, punish yourself. Have do it. But it'll hurt. So what? Not like it hurts when they shave your head and slit your trousers and strap you to your seat. Let's see, 10,000 volts coursing through this poor player's frail body. Murderer. Guilty. You should be punished. One, two, three. Curtain going up. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. There's blood on my hands, blood and filth and disease. I smashed him under gray cement and smashed him. I murdered him. I'm a murderer. I confess it. I confess hey. it. Oh, look, I want to confess to purge myself of this guilt. Oh, come on. I am guilty to I smashed him. I smashed him. What are you getting so worked up about the guy ain't even dead yet? Not dead. He is dead. He's been dead these past 36 years. 36 years. Oh. If you don't punish me, I... Oh. Hey, what are you doing? Hey, hey! will you quit beating your fist against the wall? I am guilty. And I shall be smashed as he was smashed. Hey, your hands, you're going to bust your hand on that wall. I shall be smashed. It is written. You know the writing in blood that lies across the counterpane in the bed under the window when little boys are supposed to be far away in slumberland. Mahoney, get the doctor. This guy flipped. Good. You're killing me. Something broke, and I, I don't mind the bloody scrape. Knuckles are even breaking the heavens, but not the bones. Two cats dead. Murdered by my stick. Four cats dead. Murdered by my stick. How long has he been doing this? About 15 minutes, Doctor. I see. All right, now you can stop that. I don't stop. I don't look. I keep right at it. Keep it apart. Murderer. Guilty. Stop it. But I'm paying a price. Stop it. I am buying my way out of the electric chair. All right, grab it. No, please. Please, please, please. I, I want to oh, pay. Sir. I'm the guilty one. I want to pay my debt to society. Hold it. No, let me go. Let me, let me, let me go. Let me go. I must That's pay. It. Steady. It's so quiet. Like the dermot needle. An injection. It'll knock me out. I can't act if I'm unconscious. I can't play my part. My guilty, guilty part. I've got, got to hurt myself. Got to hurt myself. Continue with the third act of Suspense.
And now, starring Vincent Price, Act Three of Rave Notice. So white. Such sweet stillness and peace. Gone the darkness of the cell. Steel and concrete. They're watching me very carefully. The taller one, he's new. The other gave me the hypodermic, yes. Hypodermic. How long have I been out? Did I say anything while I was out? Perhaps if I keep still, they will let me know. Doctor? Well, to put it another way, obsessive guilt with a compulsion to self-destruction. Mm. Nothing new about that. Mm. Look, he's opening his eyes. Uh, hello? Uh, you awake? Who are you? You remember me, don't you? No. Well, I gave you something uh, to quiet you a little while ago. A little while ago, huh? When you were trying to injure yourself so we'd think you're insane. Uh, and you've decided to give that up. I have to carry out my sentence, you know. How will you carry out your sentence? Be smashed. I'm to be smashed as I have smashed the cat. Is that the law? Yes, I smashed him with a stick. Stick? Hmm. You mean shotgun, don't you? Why would I say shotgun if I meant stick? I said stick. But you shot the man with a shotgun. He's a cat, and I smashed him with a stick. After you smashed him with a stick, what happened? What? What happened after he was dead? I was frightened. I went home. Mama was there. She said, how did you get blood on your hands? I said, a dog licked my hand and he had blood on his teeth. I understand you're an actor. Aren't aren't we all actors? We try to act innocent when we're killed. Doctor, will you step outside a moment? I've got them. What are they talking about out there? I wish I knew doesn't matter. I've got them. I know that. I've got them. I've got them. Well, I uh, I guess you'll be leaving us soon. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're very understanding, Doctor. I'm, I'm guilty and I must pay you know that. What the doctor means is that you're going to a place where they'll help you to get well. Get well? Yes, of course. Uh, doctor, if you'll have the affidavits drawn up, I'll sign. We'll get a court order committing him. Right. Seems you were right all along. You know, I wasn't sure until you told me about the man he shot being out of danger. Oh, yes. The guards told the patient his victim had recovered. But he didn't comprehend, of course. Went right on screaming and punishing himself. Mm. I see. What would they have given him if we'd found him sane? Well, that depends. The injured party refused to press charges and be out of here in an hour. Recovered? They didn't tell me Norman had recovered. How could he have recovered? I shot him in his fat porch. When did they tell me? It was while I was screaming, maybe. I I was really into the park and deep in it. I couldn't have heard them, couldn't have heard. And now, now he'll be free. I will go off to an insane asylum married to a role that I loathe, that I hate. No. No. Doctor! Doctor, come back, come back. It was all a joke, Doctor. Again, come back, come back. What is it? Listen, Doctor, I have a confession to make. I'm not insane. Please believe me. Believe me. Oh, of course you're not. Just a little confused, that's all. Oh, no, you're wrong. Don't you see? It was all a gag. Just a gag. Yes, of course it was. Now you're going to a place where you can rest and everything's going to be all right. No. 
No, believe me, I am sane. Why shout? I'm not shouting. I only want to impress on you. You were shouting rather loudly. Look, my lawyer said if, if, if I could prove insanity, I wouldn't go to the chair. Chair? Yeah. I thought you were to be, you said, smashed. Oh, forget that. that. That was a part of the method. Method? The Stanislavski method. It's a system of acting. What do you think, Doctor? Uh, I don't know. Well, the patient seems to be telling the truth. Yes, he does. I, I, I can fool you all over again if you feel it's necessary to prove my point. No, I, uh, I don't believe you'll be able to fool us again. Doctor, what's your opinion? I say the man's in full control of his faculties, is aware of his crime, and committed it out of what society calls a sober motive. I say the man is sane. You, sir, do you agree with the doctor? It's what I've been telling you. And I say same. That makes it unanimous. Uh, gentlemen, never in the history of the theater has such a performance been rendered, nor under such adverse circumstances. Uh, just one more question. <laughs> of course. Why did you kill him? Kill him? But I, I didn't. I shot him, that's all. Shot. You... Mean shot, don't you? Don't don't you? No. But he, Norman, he is, is dead. Yes, and you were sane, and you were going to repay society with your life. Norman is dead. Treacherous, lecherous, body villain! Bring down the curtain. The play is ended. <laughs> Suspense, in which Vincent Price starred in William N. Robeson's production of Rave Notice by James Poe. In just a moment, the names of the supporting players and a word about next week's story of suspense. Supporting Vincent Price in Rave Notice were Lou Merrill, Peter Leeds, Barney Phillips, Jack Crucian, Jim Nusser, and Jerome Thor. seen our fair share of horror movies such as Wes Craven's A Nightmare in Elm Street Stanley Kubrick's The Shining we're known for filling our mortal souls with dread creating an unnerving feeling that is only heightened when the film ends leaving you lingering on with fear however the experience that I am about to share with you is no movie for this is a true horror that is bound to leave you with many questions after discovering this tragedy I grew up in a household similar to what you would expect from a normal family my father was a botanist for a small corporation located in Western Australia while my mother was a renowned author which meant she usually worked from home though I saw my mother often I could not say the same for my father 
He worked full time, which made it difficult to spend time with him or even a conversation as he was usually scurrying along to work like a mouse to a, a piece of cheese. On the days that I did get to see him, however, my father would usually discuss with me his latest findings at work or spark up some small talk conversation, like asking about the weather or how my day was going. One day, however, there was something different about him. When my father returned home from work that evening, I was surprised to see how excited he was. He paced around the room as he was explaining to me the reason for his current estate. You see, my father usually shared with me his findings because I myself would like to follow in my father's footsteps as organic plant life has proved to be an increasingly interesting subject matter that I wish to one day work in an environment full of thriving plant life. Anyways, the reason for my father's excitement was unveiled before uh, before me as he, he pulled something small from his work bag which appeared to be a single seed. I raised my eyebrows and stared at the seed with curiosity. You see, this was no ordinary seed. It was an average looking seed similar to that of a linoleac or sunflower seed except there was a strange anomaly that could be seen. The seed, though small, shined as bright as the sun with a bright red hue similar to that of a raging fire. My father and I were both shocked and astonished at how this could be. Never in my lifetime have I seen glow so bright with such odd colour. However, as scientists, curiosity is our foundation to learn. So my father decided to do what would be the most obvious thing to do and plant the seed. For the first few weeks, the plant seemed to be growing perfectly. At this stage, my father and I were able to see a stem form. It looked like a normal stem of a sunflower, confirming our hypothesis that this seed belongs to that species. Everything seemed to be going great. Dad seemed super excited, more so than I've ever seen him before, and my mother seemed to be selling her books like wildfire. Dad's excitement seemed to be beneficial as he was more productive at work and was even given a raise. I seemed that this it seemed that this little plant was our little good luck chum. Or so I thought. Three months had passed ever since we had planted the seed and everything seemed to be perfect. By now the flower had fully bloomed and resembled a normal member of the sunflower family beside the fact that like in its seed form its petals glow bright red. One day I was watching TV while my father was at work and my mother was over at our neighbour's house. Catching up with some, uh, some of her old friends, I discovered something strange. I was drifting off to sleep on the couch when suddenly I heard someone knocking at the, at the door. Slightly agitated and tired, I slowly dragged myself from the couch and proceeded down the hallway. However, when I opened the door, I was surprised to discover that nobody was there. I stepped outside for a minute and looked around to see if anyone was around. Eventually, I sighed and closed the door, proceeding back down the hallway until again I heard knocking and paused. Knocking was much louder this time, similar to that of a hammer against a nail. I turned around and slowly proceeded back down the hallway, fear starting to build up with me. As I approached the door, the knocking increased to a point where I was scared to see what I would have to face on the other side of the door. As I slowly reached out for the door handle, I grabbed onto it, shaking with fear and took a deep breath before swinging it open. 
Once again, nothing. There was nobody in sight. At this point, I figured someone must be messing with me and turned to proceed back inside until I heard something call my name. It sounded more like a harsh whisper, but when I turned back again, nothing. At this point, I was aggravated and shouted at the top of my lungs, What do you want? Who the hell are you? And looked around for someone or something that could be the source of this disturbance until once again I heard my name, this time like a ghostly echo. It sounded as if it was off in the distance, but somehow also like a cry for help. So curiosity took over again. I proceeded to follow with the whisper, the echo luring me like a siren into its depths. When I finally reached the source of this calling, my eyes grew wide, and there in front of me was the glowing red flower. It seemed more sinister in the night as it looked as as if the flower was glowing even brighter, and I cautiously walked towards it. As I inched closer and closer, the whispers increased and became more dreadful to hear. By this point, I was terrified and still could not comprehend what was happening. Suddenly, something extraordinary happened. What I'm about to share with you is absolutely terrifying. The flower, in all its glory, turned to me slowly and in the middle of its petals I saw a sinister face. Its eyes, human-like, with black pupils and a human mouth with teeth as sharp as knives. Suddenly the flower bloomed rapidly and grew to such a great size that it was nearly as tall as the second story of our house. Suddenly the petals on the stem seemed to form what appeared to be cocoons. At this point I freaked out as the devilish face stared into my soul, not knowing what this monstrous beast had in store for me. I tried to sprint as fast as I could, but as soon as I began running, a root from the ground sprang up and twisted around my leg, dragging me to the ground. I screamed in fear and scratched the, and, and grabbed the grass as I desperately tried to escape. However, this was to no avail, and eventually the thing dragged me into the air, and I was forced to witness what this horrid thing was going to do to me. Suddenly the cocoon began to shake rapidly back and forth and disconnected from the plant, falling hard onto the ground. I looked at the somewhat translucent thing and saw what appeared to be a silhouette of a woman inside. Suddenly the thing stuck its hand out from the cocoon like a zombie rising from the dead and I screamed in fear as this thing began to unravel itself and peel its way from its enclosure. I saw the figure in full view, however, my eyes went wide. There standing in front of me was none other than me. However, this copy was not as similar to the original as it was entirely made out of organic plant life. Its hair made out of long wavy lines and vines and, and, and body of bark and birch. Its eyes were also as black as the night and contained the same similar grin that its host had. The thing slowly walked over to me and when it reached about a foot away from me leaned in to stare at me with those soulless eyes before grinning wickedly, showing off its sharpened teeth. Your life is mine, it said. And I found myself in a struggle and screaming for my life as the thing grabbed me and carried me over to its host, which then grew another slimy alien-like cocoon that ripped open down the middle and opened as if it were a door to a great hall. Suddenly the thing grew through me in the, the cocoon and The enclosure sealed itself with me inside. I panicked, but to no avail. My life was over. I was now trapped inside this thing with no way to escape. The monster seemed to be satisfied with its meal, and slowly I felt myself becoming weak. 
skin became prickly and hard and my hair began to fall out of my head until there was nothing left. I was deteriorating into nothing. I noticed that while this was happening, my copy went through a type of metamorphosis. His spines were becoming hair and his body transforming into flesh and bone, starting from the insides until the entire thing looked exactly like me. I tried to let out one last cry for help but found myself too weak to do so and eventually when the flower reduced its size back into its original form, I had transformed into something else. A type of fertiliser, you could say, forced to be part of this thing's roots as it dragged me into the dirt deep below the ground. This thing was now living my life, and each day I had to suffer as I watched this parasite infiltrate my home. The reason for my story is this. If you ever notice something you have never seen before, do not approach it. This thing now resides over my home, waiting to lure its next victim to its deadly peril. Look out for its signature red glow, as this is what will ultimately lead to your demise as you venture further into the unknown. body bags <laughs> I like calling it the body bag it's the mail bag and this one's from Sarah S she writes I have a little girl I have a little ghost girl in my house named Barbara sometimes she turns the radio on when my niece is dancing and once she stops Barbara turns the music off until she dances again she must like my niece because one day after she had woken up my niece my niece came into the other room and told us that someone said good morning to her. But nobody else had been in her room. Barbara also communicated with me and some of my friends when I was little. We were playing outside and two of the girls decided to go back into their house. Once they returned, they said that they had seen someone wearing all white float past them. Well, thank you for that, Sarah. I'm sure she's not there to uh, cause any problems. She's probably a little girl who used to reside in your house and just wants to be friends. And this one is from Jackie D. I, we keep anonymity when requested. This one's from Jackie D. Who also wanted anonymity. As a kid, my stepsister always told me that there was a little girl who'd run around in the attic and keep her up at night. She said the girl would also come to her bedside and ask her to play. I always thought she was pulling my leg. It wasn't until years later that I finally believed her. The first summer after all of my siblings moved out, I spent a lot of days at home alone. Whenever I would shower, I would hear the bathroom door creak open and I would peek out of the curtain and the door would be open but no one would be there. I'd close the curtain again all of the cabinet doors would suddenly start banging. I would open the curtain and the cabinet doors would be open, but again, no one was there. After this happened to me on several occasions, I was convinced my dad's house was haunted. I still don't like being there alone, even as an adult. Well, thank you, Jackie. Uh, it'd be interesting to interview you sometime about your findings. All right.
And now, dear listeners, some campfire stories. Please gather around. Susie loved dolls. In fact, one entire wall of her bedroom was dolls. Shelf upon shelf, she had two dozen dolls that she named and loved. One day, on out shopping with her mother, they passed a new doll shop. The store window was filled with dolls, all dolls Susie wanted. But the best doll of all was sitting by herself in the corner, with curly strawberry blonde hair, pale blue dress and black shoes. She was definitely the prettiest. Try as she might, Susie's mum didn't want to buy her the doll or even set foot into the shop. Shop after shop, Susie's mum looked at endless shelves of vases, paintings and boring clothes. At night, when she got home, she wished that the doll could be hers and only hers. She'd give anything. The next morning, Susie woke up to find that the strawberry blonde doll was sitting on the shelf. Only no other dolls were touching her, as though they were afraid of her. She ran into the kitchen to ask her parents when they bought it, but nothing greeted her except silence. In her arms, she heard the doll softly giggle. After travelling all day for the fourth day straight, the man decided he'd had enough and he was ready for bed. While I was hoping for a nice hotel, he was ready to call it quits and was more than happy to check into any motel, no matter how dumpy and run down. He regretted that thought as the next motel was only six rooms and couldn't have been updated from when it was first built back in the 40s. The motel clerk looked at him in surprise when he rang the service bell in the makeshift one-room lobby that was also home to the coffee maker and day-old bagels and donuts. On second thought, that coffee looked a few days old too. The small clerk handed him a key to the room to room four and told him to call down if he needed anything during his stay. She'd be there all night. As the man walked past the first room and the second room, he realised his car and the clerk's car were the only ones in the parking lot, which was odd considering that as he approached room three, he saw the light flick on. He peered through the keyhole and saw a woman walking away from the door and into the bathroom soundlessly. Unlocking his own door, he was happy to kick off his shoes and flop onto the bed. He heard soft crying from the room next door, but it didn't last long. And nor did he. He quickly fell asleep. Around two in the morning, he awoke with a jolt, although he couldn't say why. There had been no noise, and yet his heart was racing. Deciding to clear his head, he stepped outside to go for a quick walk. The light to room three was still on, and he once again peered into the keyhole, curious about this mystery guest. All he saw was a dark red... Strange, he thought. Perhaps they hung up a towel. He headed down to the lobby to see if maybe there might be a, a f- some food to satisfy the need for a midnight stat- a snack. The clerk and his stale bagels were all that he found in the lobby. He started to leave, but his curiosity got the better of him. Uh, the guest in room three, is she okay? The clerk looked confused. There's no guest except for you tonight, the man 
swallowed slowly while the clerk had a giggle. Although some of the townies claim that a woman's ghost inhabits that room. I've never seen her, though. They claim she has blood-red eyes. One summer at a camp in the Adirondacks, a young boy was excited for his first sleepaway camp, ready for adventure and to make friends. The first few, the first week flew by. Terry wrote home telling his parents and brother of all his cool new friends, his archery skills and how fast he could swim the dock in the middle of the lake now. During the counsellor's usual bunk checks around midnight, Cole flashed his light through bunk eight and saw Terry's bed was empty. Cole quietly left the cabin so as not to wake the other campers and headed to the counsellor's cabin. Guys, Cole said breathlessly, Terry is missing. The group grabbed their sweatshirts, boots and flashlights and headed into the woods. Cole yelled, Terry! 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 Over and over, his voice grew quieter until it was nothing more than a distant whisper. Another group of counsellors found Terry behind the cabin, sleeping soundly after a sleepwalking journey. Cole never returned, but some say you can still hear him looking for the camp to this day. Terry! <laughs> And now, my dear listeners, I see that we have time for one more story. This one is one I penned called The Anniversary. I was late. My wife would have, been, would have a fit, our 25th anniversary, and I had a business meeting that didn't finish until 8pm. I should have been home hours ago, but the boss was writing us and insisted that the entire sales department stay back and discuss how to increase profits. He insisted by saying if we didn't attend the meeting, we needn't bother attending the next day. I'd reserved the best table at her favourite restaurant. When I called to tell her I'd be late and we wouldn't make it to the restaurant, she said she understood. I know she was looking forward to the evening and I could hear the ice in her voice over the phone. Still, she said she would have a nice steak dinner ready for when I got home. Whatever time that would be. It was pouring outside, but the roads were clear ahead, so I was doing about 20 over the limit in hopes to get home to desperately make up to my wife for spoiling the dinner plans. I raced around the bend, the wipers frantically swishing the water from the windscreen. That's when I saw them. The woman and her little girl crossing the road. I slammed the brakes on, but the car simply hydroplaned straight through them. I came to a stop about a hundred feet further along and sat in the middle of the road. My hazard lights flashing frantically, my heart pounding in my chest. In the rearview mirror, I could see the two bodies laying on the ground. The woman and her little girl. I pulled the car over to the side and climbed out. Standing in the pouring rain, I tried to see where the bodies were, but I guess they must have been further along the road than I thought. 
and walked slowly towards the spot where I'd seen them in the mirror, but I couldn't find them. I returned to the car and removed the flashlight, always carrying the glove to com- compartment. Waving the torch side to side as I walked, I searched for the two bodies. I searched the middle of the road and the verge, but they weren't there. They somehow crawled into the ditch, but they couldn't have. They, they had to have been deceased. They couldn't have survived. Could they? I waded ankle deep in the rainwater in the ditch, looking everywhere but couldn't see them. I needed help to search. I climbed back into the car and hurried, hurriedly pulled out in the road, making my way to the closest police station. The desk sergeant almost jumped out of his skin when I burst into the station. I hit them, I said. I hit them. I looked for them, but I couldn't. I couldn't. I hit them. Please, get some men. Now wait just a moment, he said, taking a form and patting his uniform pocket, searching for a pen. Look, there isn't time. They could still be alive. They must be to crawl off like that. Listen, bud, he said. You come bursting in here yelling and demanding I go with you. I got to write up a report. I was driving, they stepped out, I hit them. What more do you need in your report? We can write that up later. Please, you've got to come quickly. Okay, okay, you got your car out the front? Yes, hurry. The sergeant grabbed his jacket and followed me outside. He looked at the front of my car. Where's the damage? What damage? Look, we got to get out there. Listen, if you hit something, there'd be damage to the front end, right? What? I said, not believing that we were wasting time like this. There's nothing. Look, please, you've got to come out and look on the road. Please help me. Fine, we'll take the squad car. Get in, he said, opening the front of the car door. We drove to the site. The rain had stopped by the time we arrived. The cop stepped out of the car and held his flashlight up in front, searching the road. He waved an arm to beckon me to join him. I don't see anything, buddy, he said disapprovingly. If this is some kind of a joke... Do I look like I'm joking? I said, cutting him off. He shone the light in my face, studying me a moment. I guess not. Come on, let's look around. We searched for another hour, both sides of the road, but there was no sign of the, wi- the woman or her child. But there had to have been. There is no way they could have gone far. I remember seeing the bodies clearly in the mirror. The girl's leg was bent sideways at a right angle. Even if the mother had been able to crawl away, there is no way the girl could have. Look, let's go back to the station and make out a report. I will send a search party out, see if we can find them. He opened the door of the squad car again. I climbed in and he got in the driver's side. We drove back to the station. Back at the station, I sat watching him pa- his pockets again. He found the pen and started writing. 26th of May, he said as he wrote the date. So what happened? I was in a hurry. I came around the bend and that's when I hit them. A woman and a girl. Yes, I said. How were they dressed? Dark clothes. I really didn't get a look. Look, they were there. I hit them. I saw them laying in the street. I couldn't find them. I came here. Dark clothes. Was the child possibly wearing... No, it couldn't be. What? Could the girl have been wearing a dark blue parka? I guess. Why? He clicked some buttons on his computer keyboard. Blue Parker. What was the woman wearing? Pants. Jeans, maybe. A jacket? I don't know. Think, man, think, he yelled at me. It was raining. She had to have been wearing a jacket. 
It was raining that night too. What night, I asked. Doesn't matter. Try to think. What colour jacket? Dark. A dark jacket. Grey, he asked. Yes, come to think of it. It was grey. Dark grey. Dark grey, he mumbled, the blood rushing from his face. What is it? Ten years ago, the 26th. 26th May? He nodded. The 26th of May, 2013. A woman and her daughter. Nine or ten years old, I asked. Nine. They were crossing the road in the rain when a fuel tanker came barreling around the bend and cleaned them up. The driver of the truck, he didn't see them until he was right on top of them. They both died before the ambulance could arrive. I stood dazed and shuffled toward the exit. Turned to the officer, his face white as a sheet. It's the anniversary tonight. I walked outside. Never believed in ghosts before, but I know what I saw. I saw something that night. my ghoulish guests, I'd bid thee a fond farewell. Before, before I do, remember that strange noise you hear in your sleep, that thing that goes bump in the night, may very well be a madman hiding beneath your bed. <laughs> Pleasant dreams. Stories in tonight's episode of The Midnight Hour were The Devil and Tom Walker, written by Washington Irving. The Woman, written by Brenton Fowle. The Wife, written by Brenton Fowle. Rave Notice, starring Vincent Price, a dramatisation of a story originally written by James Poe. The Seed, by Brenton Fowle. The Anniversary, by Brenton Fowle. Urban Legends... A Cursed Doll, Motel Keyhole, and The Missing Camper. Thank you to Sarah S. and Jackie D. Remember, if you have any experiences with the supernatural, paranormal, the unknown, we would love to interview you. And also, if you have any short stories you would like to share with us and have read over the radio, We'd be glad to read them out as well. All emails should be sent to info at iplradio.org.au. Thank you. Good night. See you next week. Community Station. You are listening to IPL Radio.